0: Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming Williams. In this episode, I speak to Ben Eisenberg of People Data Labs, the provider of B2B and professional data. In our conversation, Ben and I discuss PDL's evolution and what can be achieved with records covering 1 billion individuals. In other news, I will be moderating a panel at the Beryl Elite Conference in New York on June 20th to the 21st. I hope to see some familiar faces there. So in this episode, I'm joined by Ben Eisenberg of People Data Labs. Thanks very much for joining us today, Ben.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark.
0: You're very welcome. Um, ben, why don't we begin just by um, wetting the appetite, setting the scene? Um, why don't you tell me what People Data Labs does very briefly?
1: Yeah, so uh, we always say that we are the single source of truth for B2B data. Um, so we build person and company data today. Um, and we aggregate data globally. We have data on over one billion people and over 18 million companies. Um I think from a principal standpoint, what we do over time will probably apply to other data attributes and kind of, you know, entities as well. Um, but we can get into that as we start diving more into kind of where the
0: company's going. Perfect. And what's your story? How did you how did you come to People Data Labs?
1: Yeah, so I actually came to People Data Labs while I was still in college. Um I met with the CEO and co-founder, Sean. Uh, he had reached out to a club that I was in, um, and I was instantly kind of attracted to him and to the culture of the company. Uh, I started off working on projects on the engineering team. And over time, I kind of spread myself throughout the business and evolved, you know, a lot of different skills and got to grow at the company. I started when there were about 10 employees, and now we're over 100.
0: It sounds like you are replicating yourself like a virus. It sounds terrifying.
1: Uh, They say that a lot, and it it scares me as well. You know, Sean has always been joking that he's trying to get cloning going um, for me and a couple of the other early employees who started out, you know, pretty young, where this is our first job. Um, But he hasn't succeeded yet, so we're going to keep trying.
0: That's the that's the startup way, really, isn't it? It's a um, it's about basically making yourself useful wherever you can and um, and growing with the business. So so sounds like you're doing it right. Yeah. But so, and so what did the, so what did the business look like when you joined? You're you're based out of San Francisco. Is that where the the company's based out of?
1: Yeah, the company's based out of San Francisco. The company kind of flashed back and forth between San Francisco and Portland very early on. Um, And I would say when I joined, we were just starting to realize that we were a data company. Um, So the company actually started with a different name. Its name was Talent IQ. And the product that Sean and his co-founder Henry had built was a very simple SaaS recruiting platform. Essentially, they were ranking developers um, and selling that to recruiters as, you know, kind of a monthly subscription. Um, So a recruiter could log into the platform, see, you know, access a list of developer candidates and the platform would rank them. Based on what? Based on kind of the job criteria, right? So let's say you wanted a JavaScript developers in San Francisco, you know, the platform would help you rank and sort those people and pull them a very, very classic like recruiting application. Um, and it actually did pretty well. I think they got it up to like 25K in monthly recurring revenue. Mm. Um, but neither Sean nor Henry were really, really excited by that. And what started happening... No, but
0: I'm just intrigued by that business model. It Because you would think that um, the fact that that existed and it got up to 25K, I would have thought there would be a major... Market player doing that now. It seems to me, and I'm not, I'm not a recruiter, but it seems to me like the recruitment business doesn't. I don't know. It doesn't necessarily. What is that? Maybe the the developer work, recruitment business does work like that. Is that is that standard? Is that standard practice now across that sector? Do you know?
1: Yeah, I'd say that sector has grown so much in the last. Yeah. So the company was founded in 2015. The that sector has grown so much in the past seven years, and it could have been the talent IQ was one of the fastest growing companies in that sector, but it was not something that interested the co-founders, Sean and Henry, um, as a long-term vision. And the other thing that was happening in parallel is some of the companies that were competitive or adjacent to uh, Talent IQ started asking Sean and Henry if they could actually go and buy the data that they were building. So what they realized was the data that they were building was actually a lot more lucrative than the SaaS platform that they had built, the contracts that they could sign, you know, the size of those contracts, the scope of those contracts and the challenges that they'd need to solve were a lot bigger. Um, And so like many startups in San Francisco, they pivoted. um, And for most of 2016 and 2017, I'd say we were really, really trying to figure out how to make it work as a data company. Um, And, you know, as soon as I joined, I always joke, the company started taking off, not because of me in any way, but the company just started to really find its stride. Um, and then by yeah. 2018 we had raised our Series A, and from there it's just been,
0: you know, a rocket ship of growth and, and a really really exciting business to be a part of. The same thing happened when I became a Chelsea fan, um, <laughs> but and so People Data Labs, you started off, and so the data in the in the first place was. Um, developers essentially and 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 who the developers were so you were you were the data was candidates um for recruitment in the first place and you've expanded beyond that
1: yeah exactly so we have what we call our data union which is an opt-in data sharing co-op between us and a lot of our customers and partners um and what happened was we went to this first customer that we sold to and said hey can if you're going to buy our data can we have your data um and they said yes and I think that sort of catalyzed the vision for what we were trying to do. And, you know, the market for data, especially data on people, has evolved so much since 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, but that model has been able to kind of survive the tests of, of privacy regulation, um, because all we need to do, right, we're not uh, crawling very sensitive sources, we're not buying from very sensitive sources, is just kind of work with our partners to stay within compliance. And of course, there are some partners that don't stay within compliance and we have to remove them. But for the most part, you know, we're building out this cooperative of companies that are both generating value from the data that they're getting from us and actually providing value to our product um, in terms of what we're building out.
0: And so... Okay, so the so the data today, then, looking at it now, it is uh, what what does it look like? How big is it? What kind of um universe are we talking in terms of what are you providing right now?
1: Yeah. so we have data on what we usually describe as a billion unique people um, and over eighteen million companies. A majority of the person data is sourced from our data union, so from companies sharing their data with us, um and you know some from the public web. And then the company data, you know, is a combination of the same thing. We're getting some data from partners and we're getting some data from the public web. Um, and we basically build those two data sets in parallel, um, and kind of, you know, build out all the attributes, add new attributes. And we have, you know, a series of APIs that our customers can use to tap into that data. And we also license flat files of that data.
0: Um, and you know, yeah, I guess that's
1: how we've scaled it out over time.
0: If you've got a billion people, um, and, uh, the workforce. Um, I'm going to run aground here, but the workforce is mm-hmm. is people between 18 and 65 broadly. So that's cutting out all the all the children and all the all the all the OAPS. Um, the you're, I mean, you're not far off having everyone, are you? Was that was that is that billion or is it a round number? Kind of. It,
1: it, it it's it's about a round number, but also you know it's it's tough to know exactly how many people you have, right? Like you have this giant corpus of data on people, right? But what makes up a person and how do you represent that? You know, it's, it's extremely difficult, right? And I think we take a very, maybe not unique approach, but a unique approach compared to a lot of legacy data providers. We don't have a primary key in our data set. So like we might have one profile on you, on Mark, that has you know, your email, your resume and your name, right? And we might pick up another profile from somewhere else that has, you know, your social profiles tied together. Um, And the challenge that PDL has to solve is how do we link those two profiles together and have one confident mark, right? Without creating Mm -hmm. a, what I would call a Frankenstein mark where we're merging together. I guess you don't have that common of a name, but I have a very common name. Like merging together all of the Ben Eisenbergs in the world would create kind of this giant Frankenstein of a person record, right?
0: um terrific. all the john smiths i mean yeah all
1: the john smiths right um so that's the challenge that we face it's a precision recall problem um email so, email,
0: you know, email addresses your friend here yep and they're, they're unique
1: yep anytime we uh can we merge things together and anytime we're confident we merge things together so when we say a billion people you know is it really a billion it's around there you know everything that we believe points us towards that that's around a billion people but you know there's definitely a rate of duplication of the data there's probably people that are missing that we should have you know no data is perfect
0: do you have a, a a kind of checklist of i don't know you've just touched on a couple of things in terms of social presence and in terms of email address and whatever former jobs do you have a checklist of kind of i don't know 10 or 20 things that it is possible to have on a person and everyone has got at least a name, and some people you've got 20 things, you've got all 20 of them uh, about them, and some people you've only got two or three things about them and they're a work in progress. Is it, or, or is there, or do you just keep accumulating whatever you can get and the potential list just goes on and on and on and on?
1: So yeah, we keep accumulating kind of whatever we can get within the scope of our schema, right? I think there's data points that are sensitive that we don't want, right? For example, like we don't want to collect data on people's race, Um, and what we collect, you know, I'd say, I always call it resume plus, you know, people's work history, people's education, history, skills, interests, um, you know, their location history, uh, emails, phones, social profiles, obviously their name. Um, so we kind of lump all that data together and try to create, you know, a unique person. So we usually require that a profile has a name and at least one piece of personally identifiable information so that we're always rooting it in something. and then we have, you know, an entity resolution process for merging all the data that we're taking in together to try to make those profiles as holistic as possible. Um, and on the company side, it's, it's very, very similar. You know, we have kind of your standard company information, you know, name, website, ticker, uh, location, etc. cetera. Um, and then we're kind of building additional attributes on top of that. So we build derived attributes, combining our person and our company data, which we call company insights. Um, we have industry data, et cetera.
0: Okay. Um, OK, cool. So we've got a big data set of the vast majority of the of the working population of the world, which is which is pretty exciting. Well, I, that might be too much. But anyway, a, a, a gigantic number of working population of the world. Um, so who uh, who is it useful for?
1: Yeah. So, you know, the obvious one that I always go to is we started in HR. We have a very big presence in HR tech. So companies that are looking to help with hiring, sourcing, uh, placing candidates or you know reaching out to candidates. So that was kind of our first bread and butter use case. And then we moved in and replicated a very, very similar model in sales and marketing. You know, I always say that the flow for hiring a candidate and the flow for getting a lead to purchase your product are very, very, very similar. Um, so we started working with companies in sales and marketing. And then more recently, we've expanded into two verticals and very heavily invested in them. Um, Which are fraud and risk, and then investment research. Uh, And both of those verticals were not places where our data was initially strong or we were building our data towards. And we had some early adopters, but now we've started building out data attributes and building the data in a way that makes it easier for companies in those two verticals to consume the data um, and get relevant insights from it faster.
0: So, just quickly HR and recruitment, uh, you could, if somebody, had their eye on a really good candidate, um, but they didn't know how to contact them, then you could be able to help them uh, by providing an email address or, or something yeah. like that? It's,
1: so yeah. like every stage of the funnel, right? So if I am if I have a job rec and I'm looking to match candidates that job rec, right? There are companies out there that build AI talent matching who take in a resume and match it to a core corpus of candidates and spit out those candidates. A lot of those companies use PDL data. Um, Or I am a recruiter and I want to do Boolean searches and I don't want to use LinkedIn recruiter. I want to use a platform that, you know, has some specific feature that LinkedIn recruiter doesn't have, maybe like integrating with my specific ATS, you know, that's probably PDL data. And then, you know, as you're saying, as you kind of get a little bit further down the funnel, maybe I've identified somebody that I want to hire. Maybe let's just keep going with the LinkedIn recruiter example. I've identified them on LinkedIn recruiter, but I can't get their email right? LinkedIn recruiter gives me their B2B email. You're not going to reach out to somebody over their B2B email if you're trying to hire them. That's a little, you know, a little bit of a faux pas. Um, I'm going to use a tool to help me capture that email, you know, and their we power, you know, Chrome extensions and tools that help enrich candidates at that level as well.
0: Yeah. I'm getting the impression you're absolutely massive. How many, how many, um, how many people do you are in the company? Uh, it's
1: a little bit over a hundred. Um, right. It's actually crazy. Every time we get asked this the number is larger um so we did uh, an activity this week and everyone had to write down how many um people that they thought were at the company and the numbers that people wrote down everyone knows we're over 100 but anywhere from like 100 to 120 were the guesses um and only one or two people got it exactly right which is kind of crazy
0: Ben, it doesn't bode well given your given your business. Um, that you <laughs> can't keep track of of the hundred or so people in your own company. I mean, come on. Yeah, you know, I think, <laughs>
1: you know, the data engineers could probably keep track of everyone, you know, very okay, very well. Okay. It's it's the wider business, you know.
0: Yeah. Where the human human frailty is is universal. Yeah. yeah fair yep. enough. <laughs> um, okay, so. Um, Okay. And so into fraud, you are used for, um, so if a, how are you used in fraud?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So we are not uh, FCRA compliant in terms of the way our data is structured today. So that means we can't be used for any hard credit decisioning. Um, But there's a lot of soft credit decisioning that happens throughout the funnel in fraud and risk today, particularly in the fintech space. So the way I would describe that is, you know, I, Ben Eisenberg, sign up for a Coinbase account. Coinbase goes and takes whatever data I input, you know, in the US, my social security number, my name, my address, and they go and they run that against, you know, one of the companies that sells credit worthiness data, for example, Experian. Um, And they get an output if they should make me an account or not. But that doesn't give them a lot of information on who I am, right? Particularly, for example, my B2B profile. If I'm pretty young, but I'm working at, you know, a Series B startup, does that mean I have a higher net worth than you know somebody who's pretty young but you know, still in graduate school, for example, right? So how do you figure out where somebody should be placed in their onboarding? how much their credit limit should be, right? Kind of that tail end of the funnel we're useful in. And then also on the front end of the funnel for fraud and risk, um, identifying people who are potential targets to reach out to to, for example, invite them to sign up for something. Like you don't want to invite risky people to come and sign up for your product. Um, So kind of trying to figure out and derive what someone's riskiness might be through a machine learning model kind of before you run a credit check is the other place that we fall a lot of times in kind of the the KYC funnel, I
0: guess. So if I never get invited to sign up to new products, that suggests that somebody somewhere thinks I'm risky maybe?
1: Yeah. Um, Okay. And, you know, the complexity with which different companies approach this problem is very, very different. But as you can imagine, the impact of being able to more confidently say that someone is risky or not risky is is really, really high. If it's like opening a bank account, for example, right? Like Being able to get more people access to credit is something that we always talk about with our data, because we can help complete a picture that might not be able to be completed in any other way.
0: Fantastic. So here we are, we're at financial services. How might an investor use PDL?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So I think we have data that's both relevant in the public space and the private space. So we have data on tons and tons of people and tons and tons of companies, right? Um, And being able to link that person data with that company data is really, really powerful to kind of get inside of a business and understand what's going on without actually really being inside Um, The example that I always give is, let's say, uh, PDL's entire sales team leaves tomorrow, um, and you needed to project how healthy PDL was going to perform over the next six months. Like, if we don't have a sales team, it's highly likely that our revenue growth is going to slow down. Um, And then, you know, you scale that out, right, to a public company, for example, and being able to see those insights at a public company level um, is really powerful in terms of predicting earnings and company performance. Uh, so kind of that end to end cycle of understanding what's going on in a company. And there's a lot of different ways to slice and dice that, um, to get different insights for different purposes, but that's, I'd say the high level of it.
0: Fantastic. And so who have you been selling this data to in the financial, um, in the financial sphere? And I'm not asking for names.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'd say early on, um, there were a subset of data driven, VCs and hedge funds that felt very, very comfortable using our person data on its own. So imagine I hand you, I don't know, I hand you like hundreds of millions of resumes, right? And you use them to essentially derive out what the headcount of the company looked like over time, or when the company made their first customer success hire, or all of the of things that you can do with, you know, a corpus of resumes. Um, So there were some companies that were doing that very early on with our data. Um, but the adoption rate was very, very low. And so what we did is we actually did the work for our customers now by building these, what I would call, or what we call company insights fields um, of essentially aggregating that information already. So we've built out the logic for essentially how is the company changing over time? You know, headcount, I mentioned, you know, roll over time. What's the breakdown of people by country who are recent executive hires and departures. Uh, what's the churn ratio of the company? Like, Are there a lot of people leaving over the last 12, 24, 36 months? Not a lot of people. Um, And all those derived insights have unlocked a much wider market of the same players, right? You know, VCs, I'd say wealth managers, and hedge funds. But being able to have the data available and usable for making a decision right away, instead of needing to do a lot of the pre processing work yourself, especially when you don't have a team of data scientists at the ready, you know, it allows you to essentially cover a lot of that work much easier and get, get going with the data faster.
0: Definitely. Is it automated? How often does it update?
1: Yeah. So we have it via an API um, and we update our resume data quarterly or sorry, monthly. Um, We used to update it quarterly. Um, We update every single month. We push a new version of both the person and the company data into our APIs. Um, And it's interesting because I'm talking in, you know, say like the hedge fund, space, for example, there's a need for the data to be updated really, really fast.
0: This is what I was going to say. If you, if you yep. do it every month and there's going to start being a market and trying to get ahead of your monthly updates and trying, yep. to, uh, trying to get an insight on the two weekly in order to try and get ahead of the, the PDL data drop to uh, yep. the effect that'll have on the stock price.
1: Yep. And, and the interesting thing is resume data actually moves very, very slowly. Um, so like, let's say I quit PDL today. The chance that I go and update my resume and send that into one of PDL's data union sources, or even just go and update my LinkedIn. because there are tons of companies that just go and crawl LinkedIn, right? Um, The chance that that gets updated right away is actually kind of very low. Yeah, so, you know, there's this kind of like slower rate of the data than, you know, say, well, if you're looking at ticker data directly, or if you're looking at like credit card data, for example, right, Um, and what we're capturing really is the picture of the company over time. Um, So we could update faster, Right. We probably will update faster if, like you're saying, somebody comes along and says, Hey, we can get ahead of the PDL drop. Right. But the value in faster and faster updates becomes very, very, I guess, diminishing returns. Um, because the amount and quantity of data that we could actually update in those, you know, let's say intermittent, let's say it's weekly updates is small enough that it's harder and harder to derive value from the real value from. You know, I guess the perspective of us and our customers is really understanding the dynamics of how the company has changed, you know, Um, and what what big changes are happening over time. Yeah,
0: this only this only I was I was what I was saying only becomes a factor after PDL has already dominated the market to the extent that the PDL resume drop um, means that it's affecting prices when the PDL resume drop monthly happens.
1: Yeah, and, and wouldn't that be nice, right?
0: Exactly. And as big and yeah. established as you are, you're not maybe quite there yet. Um so uh so yeah, I was it was it was a yeah. um but so yeah, but and and I'm sure this kind of thing, if that does become a factor, then there will be ways to make it faster. I'm sure yep. you know, that'll 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 come up. That's that's what progress is.
1: And I think from PDL's perspective, right, in the world of alternative data, we believe that human capital data is, you know, something that should be table stakes. And I think a lot of our early adopting customers believe that as well. Um, The way credit card data is used today and consumed today, kind of across the board, you know, with a lot of different companies trying to get an edge, but also just even trying to understand baseline company health. I think HR data, right, information on the people at the company is, is very, very similar in a lot of ways, but there aren't a lot of ways to tap into that data today. I think we're one of the first.
0: For sure, for sure, um where do you where do you see do you have a clear vision of of do you have kind of aspirations of where this is going and and kind of you know give us a couple of years and we will do x y z are you are, have you got a kind of where where's what what does where what does the year look like and beyond yeah
1: it's it's a good question. I think
0: like any company, you know we're really listening to what our
1: customers want and you helping that kind of dictate our roadmap. I'd say one unsolved question in the world at large that PDL is trying to solve is how to aggregate and bucket people in terms of their title. Um, So, you know, my title might be data engineer or my title might be software engineer or my title might be something much weirder, right? But in the end, I'm just an engineer working on the product. And how do you group people appropriately that there's good granularity, but also that the right people are grouped together. So you're actually getting signal, not just noise. Um, and then similarly
0: on the, on the, on the engineer side, I wonder if, um, I wonder if the key might be in, um, in the skills. It just seems like, you know, I have X, Y, X number of years, the X number of projects experience on the Google cloud platform will be a big differentiating factor, um, rather than just, I'm a data engineer, you know, it, it can be, it can be in the skills that you can start actually, and, and finding potentially measuring um, the amount of experience someone has had, cause, cause actually when we're talking about that kind of skill, now we're in the, in the kind of, you know, um, technology space, when we're talking about that kind of skill, it doesn't matter if you had that, uh, GCP experience in Malaysia or in, or in, uh, Milwaukee, you know, it's, it's, it's about, um, the skills are the same, you know, that's what the globalized world looks like. So, so maybe it becomes more skills-based. I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. And I think the question always becomes from a PDL perspective, Right we can give our customers tons and tons of granularity, right? Like we could go and build out a full hierarchy of skills, right? We could try to infer skills. We could try to build tons and tons of metadata and information on a person, right? Um, But in the end, when you're trying to make a decision on a company, you need that to roll up to the company. And the easier we can make it to roll up to the company in the case of investment research, right? The more valuable and actionable it becomes. So it's that challenge of, okay, how do we get the data to be you know, really, really flexible, really, really accurate, really, really usable at the granular level? And also, how do we get it at the aggregate level to be really, really usable and really, really powerful, right?
0: Sounds like a fun problem.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think there's a similar problem in, in terms of industry tagging, right? Um, you know, you've got your classic, like, Nix and Six Codes tied to a company, which are often self-reported. They're often, you know, not that accurate. I remember looking at a data source that had Apple tagged as a dentistry office, um, which I thought was really, really interesting. Um, you know, you've got like the industries that companies self-identify on different profiles, like AngelList, Crunchbase, LinkedIn, etc. cetera, right? And those come from a set taxonomy, um, but neither of those really answer the question of what a company is doing. Um, you know, like how would you describe the industry that Apple is in? You know, it's easy to say they're in the technology space, but then as we go deeper, like, are they a retail company? Are they a mobile phone company? Are they a device company? Are they a laptop company? Are they a car company? Right? Mm. Um, how do we describe what companies are really trying to do? Who their competitors are? What companies are similar to them? And trying to create you know, better comp groups, essentially. Um, so that's an area of focus for us in
0: investment research as well. So you're trying to bring order to the world, essentially, and, um, and, and a taxonomy to, uh, to, to everything. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. It sounds uh, it sounds like a very very useful and worthwhile um, task to fulfil. So um, I will uh, I think I should probably leave you to to get back to mm-hmm. it. So um, Ben, thank you very much indeed for for joining us today and talking about People Data Labs and um, and best of luck with with all these aspirations for the future.
1: Thanks, Mark. Um, and yeah, we're really excited for where we're going. So I think there's going to be uh, a lot of news on the horizon.
0: Fantastic.